I just told you, first thing I said on this podcast, hi, it's War Machine. Uh, today, we're Trip's going to say that the most true thing about you is that you're known and loved completely by God. They'd be like, this is bullshit. War Machine. We're talking with the mighty Trip Fuller this episode. For anyone who isn't already familiar with Trip, he's the host of the long-standing theology podcast called Homebrewed Christianity. Besides being a broadcaster, Trip is a scholar, minister, a theologian, a philosopher of religion. And he's recently written a book called Divine Self-Investment, which uh, sort of builds out his vision for an open and relational Christology. I'll link to that in the show notes. That's where we start the conversation. Uh, but we ended up then talking about some, some process theology stuff, obviously. Uh, Christian animism, Jesus as shaman, uh, comparative semiotics. Uh, the, the challenge of technology for religion, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, once again, this conversation went a bit, a bit long, so sorry to say this will be split into two parts uh, again. We don't typically plan on going longer than 90 minutes, so I, I don't know. I guess we just get caught up in things. I'm not sure. Anyway, check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. And enjoy. Here's Trip. I have to admit, I haven't read any sort of actual substantive theology and certainly not any Christology in several years. So that was, that was fun. That was a treat. Um, Just trying to bring Jesus to all you backslidden people. Yeah, no, we, we know you're a man on a mission. <laughs> I was like, man, Tripp's really, really hardcore Christian when I read this book. I mean, I already knew that. <laughs> He's a hardcore Christian. <laughs> how, how, how hardcore is, the, is, is Tripp's Christianity? Yeah, how hard is it? <laughs> Do you want to talk about maybe some of the background about this book? Like, you know, what were the, some of the, the questions that you were, you know, asking at the time? Some of the kind of the things that you're responding to in Christological debates that are going on, um, either in the church or in the academy and so on. Like, how did this, like, what, what was the sort of catalyst for, for your thinking around this book? Yeah, so, um, you know, academic theologians always pretend like they write from, like, nowhere specific. And, and the more academic it is, the, the less uh, obvious it is about your location. Um, and, and I talk a bit at the front about it, but, you know, for me, the, the book was a, a way of introducing the open and relational theological picture to the larger Christological conversation in uh, liberal theology. Uh, basically, constructive theologies after Kant uh, have a really big decision to make. Um, 
do you come up with some way that through special revelation you overcome this kind of distancing move right like uh or, or the otherness of god and then you get access to special revelation like Karl bart style or do you uh take the kantian uh bargain uh in his second critique where you you deny ultimate knowledge about god to make space for religion right and so you get to the retrieval of ethics and morality freedom this type of thing which most liberal theologians tend to so if you ask them about christology it's primarily about ordering religious affection in community uh toward uh, to justice and things like that um you know, Hegel process relational types still had a concept of uh, of God, um, and in American liberal theology, it was uh, the process tradition that kept alive a type of a real God that does real things, right? Like in a broad sense. So my goal was to see what happens if you take uh, philosophical theology. Uh, from an open relational perspective, um, you know, generally process, and then engage other liberal theologians who have worked with the language symbols and such of Christianity. Uh, can you, you know, metaphysically punch them up uh, with a metaphysically intentional uh, theology? And so in the end, I'm, I'm trying to do a constructive Christology that has an existential register for faith, uh, the individual's subjective response and their place in a particular community, a metaphysical register, namely that when you talk about who God is in Christ, you're talking about uh, who we are, how God was present in Christ and who, what the nature of God uh, is. And then there's the uh, historical register, which is yeah, how you understand the historical person, Jesus, and that God's relationship to uh, history. So, yeah. uh, and I kind of argue that um, there's no need by necessity to get rid of those three registers if you uh, recognize the tenuousness of doing any of it. Yeah. And so as opposed to like doing as little as possible or the minimal viable statements about God or whatever, and then doing a kind of, you know, post-structuralist type of Christology, I was like, well, what would just happen if you take this metaphysical assumption and see how far you can run with it? Yeah. But the metaphysics isn't necessarily your, your starting point, is it? Or, I mean, maybe you can say something about how you prioritize those prongs of attack, right? You know, the existential, the metaphysical, the historical, or is it, is it not so much of a prioritization, but a sort of like weaving together and holding them together to sort of carve that space between, mm -hmm. you know, people who are embarrassed about talking about God in the way that you were describing and, you know, in other kinds of ways. Yeah, I think, you know how it's popular to do theology without actually believing in a God or anything, right? Like in the yeah. academy. Um, <laughs> and I just, I was just like, yeah, but Christology, when you say Jesus is the Christ or, or something like that, then you're saying something about uh, yourself, uh, how you're existentially engaged in the world, right? As a disciple of Jesus, you're saying about God, something about God's presence in Jesus, which involves the metaphysical register. And it's an historical one in that it's a reference to a particular person and the event of uh, his presence, life, ministry, resurrection, all that kind of stuff. So I feel like they're all there, but I don't think you get around to doing metaphysics or relating to history in a Christological way until one makes the existential commitment. And so 
you know, a lot of times people do metaphysics and be like, exactly what could I say is harbored in the name of God? And then how can I squeeze something Christological into it? Or what can I build up from a historical Jesus and finally get around to asserting something about God? Maybe uh, Jesus is a wandering cynic sage who practices open table commensiality, which is problematic in uh, imperial uh, second temple period Judaism. And uh, we can practice that today and be liberal Democrats. Um like there are all these different ways of getting at it. And I think the interesting uh, opening for me was the disciples themselves, their confession of Jesus as the Christ entailed uh, putting themselves in a community of practice uh, where their whole way of being is up for grabs in a sense. And the debate for them wasn't whether or not Jesus is the Christ, but what does it mean? What's the content of that confession? And, and so, like, there t- there t- tends to be this uh, in liberal or progressive Christianity or w- people that aren't conservative uh, and have authority, there tends to be this hesitation around radical discipleship and communitarian political action and things because we aren't really sure we really believe anything and we wonder whether or not we're going to get around to believing anything. And there's this, like, perpetual deferral for material action and embodiment because we're embarrassed to talk about God or anything. So my whole thing was, well, the the place in which those ideas show up for a disciple are ones that are in the process of discovering the content of it, but it's in a community of practice. Uh, And it happens for Jesus and his disciples. And I think um, that opens up a way of thinking in a kind of uh, pluralist postmodern context about uh, a, a way of doing constructive Christology that's not inherently um you know absolutist or relativistic so yeah. i was i remember you uh, were asked a question years back uh you i think you were hanging out with nathan when you guys were still at the hatchery kind of doing mm-hmm. that program um somebody sent in a question and asked like what you what you think about like future revelations if there can be more revelations like in the future from the god that you, that you kind of um interpreted them all the way through process theology so two questions one uh, I've always wondered, you know, why why the personal agential God is necessary for Whitehead's philosophy or his metaphysics. You know, why is that kind of like creative um, choosing between potential opposites and investing in the world? Why why is that a necessary feature of Whitehead's? Like, what brought him to, to like make that claim? And then the other one is um, thinking about you know this kind of possibility of future revelations. How do you square that up with like your kind of what I've heard of yours and read of yours, your kind of pluralistic leanings religiously? Like, I don't think you're a Christian supremacist as far as I know. So how, with like, how do you get your pluralism and your possibility of future revelations squared up with like your investment in in a Christian community, right? Like this idea that there's something about Jesus and and this particular figure, however, you're like, you know, historically analyzing him, that that's worth the kind of investment in the different types of communities that have propped up Mm -hmm. in a way over the history since then. How about I'll, I'll answer the second question first, because the Whitehead one, it can be long and complicated, and then I'll forget to answer. Right. Uh, uh, and then you can tell me what about the uh, Whitehead part is, is most important. Now, for process people, the question around future revelations, you know, has to be in the context of um, the metaphysical nature of an event is one where, you know, revelation in itself happens, right? In each right. moment of becoming, uh, there is the inheritance of the past, there is the a gift of possibility, right? Divinely valuated possibilities mm-hmm. um, uh, given in the lure. And uh, those are available to the actual entity based on the the attunement and depth of their subjectivity. And that's the third power in uh, a moment of becoming is uh, the creature's 
creaturely agency. Um, and, and obviously that's different if you're a quark, a tree, uh, a uh, contemplative practicing saint, or uh, a president that tweets all day and is determined by conspiracy theories. Like your subjectivity and how you're attuned to the world changes your receptivity to the divine desire of valuating available possibilities at that moment. Now, so in a sense, revelation is always a possibility. In the book, I use the image of divine self-investment to think about the way in which uh, divine possibilities or divine self-giving moment to moment uh, can become actualized. Um, there's a play in the book, and I can't remember because I cut. There's a whole chapter on Cone and Keller that's not in the book because I was trying to keep it short enough people would finish it. Uh, in it, I, in that chapter, I play a lot on her, you know, her conversation with Caputo about, uh, you know, God's insistence. Well, if God continues to insist, does God ever get around to existing? As a way of looking at the poetics of Caputo compared to the poetics in Keller as one that for her, it's actually spoken in a metaphysical register and when it's not for um, Jack. If you think of that, since in the book, divine self-investment is a potential in each moment in which the divine minds contextualized to a particular entity's way of being, then the question is in what way does their agency uh, cultivate a type of fidelity that the invisible God is made visible or that the insistence of God is actualized or that the desire or dream of God is materialized. And so when you think of future revelations, I think uh, in some sense, the Christian through fidelity to Jesus is being called into a particular shape of existence, right? Uh, we have the same mind in us that's in Christ Jesus, this type of canonic fidelity. Um, and that when we dream the dream of God, in a sense, it is already thematized by Jesus's own fusion with the divine will, his desire for self-giving love, for radical justice and inclusion. These types of things are already in it. And so the Christian notion of continued revelation is in the history and context of the history of Israel, the life of Jesus and the church, because those previous moments of divine self-investment are inherited, prehended in the past. They're part of our inheritance moment to moment. And so in the book, uh, the in trying to wrestle with the affirmation of Jesus and the rejection of uh, supersessionism. Um, I talk about the way in which the incarnation is not divine invasion, but a type of divine emergence that only through the fidelity of Abraham and Sarah, uh, the communities wrestling with God through the prophets and the struggle to live out Torah as a persecuted and then a persecuting uh, people, that only in that whole context is there an inheritance of fidelity and infidelity, struggle, prophecy, and priestly insights that fruit uh, of it comes to be Mary, who's singing revolutionary interpretations of Isaiah with Jesus in the belly and and this type of thing. So I use the image of thinking through Christology in the history of Israel and life of the church as a way of exploring the pattern of continued revelations, future revelations, growing revelations, uh, but also a multiplicity. Because the context and trajectory of any religious tradition or any community is so shaped by the cultural uh, mythopoetic linguistic norms of a culture that I don't think people have access to talk about what it's like to respond to to the divine in a culture that's not your own. Like I, just, I feel like it's above our pay grade, you know. Um, and sometimes Christians, because they either want to affirm other religious communities um, or traditions, 
They then want to generalize them all and make them all the same so we can pat us all on the back. We're all equally wrong and equally right. And I think that, in a sense, short circuits some of the unique gifts of each particular community. Um, For example, just like in, I feel like one of the unique elements of the Christian uh, church, not that we're wonderfully good at doing this, is that we have an explicit command to love our enemy. That's not uh, normal. Possible? Oh, okay. Uh, but I mean, but you know, we're we're called to wrestle with it. You know what I mean? Like that is a specific yeah. thing that if we're all the same, uh, that's different than my office mate Omar is a uh, a Muslim theologian, and he talks about the nature of compassion being scripted into the law that the demand is for the the nation state, the law, to reflect the mercy and justice of God, and that you can't not be invested in the political order as a Muslim. I'm an Anabaptist, like with my family. We're like, yeah, I don't know. Once you get involved in that, I'm uncomfortable, right? But see, there's different different traditions have these different uh, ways of doing it. So the context of future revelations, I feel like, is the cultural inheritance. Now we're at a point, I think, multiplicity of religions becoming the inheritance of more and more people. Uh, so that's its own question. But even in the Gospels themselves, you see Jesus rather striking confidence that the future body of Christ or the church would do more than him. In the gospel of John, he'll say, he says, literally, you'll do greater things than me. Like just as I, I'm in the father, the father is in me, you'll bear fruit, all that kind of stuff, do greater things. In Luke and Acts, you see the, the spirit presence in the person of Mary, presence in the ministry of Jesus, sends out by 12, sends out by 70, empowering them to do the same thing. And then in Luke, the disciples are then filled with the spirit. And what happens throughout Acts? Like uh, the Holy Spirit leads them to undo shit Jesus did, right? Like uh, the inclusion of Gentile table fellowship and, and things like that breaking, where Peter like, gets corrected by the Holy Spirit to break Torah. But anyway, so like, I feel like in scripture, you see this movement of future revelation. So um, part of what I was doing in the book, and this isn't, not all of this is really in there, is trying to give an account of understanding Jesus in relationship to his uh, Jewish inheritance and um, the Christian community whose experience of God is mediated by Jesus that affirms the particularity of both um, is a model for thinking about uh, trans-religious conversations and multi-religious embodiment uh, in the present. Yeah, no, I think that's really helpful. And I think that skepticism of perennialism that you were sort of pointing towards, I think is is right in the way that it sort of covers over the particularities, historical particularities, symbolic registers, the existential registers that these different traditions speak in. And uh, yeah, that's a good thing to attend to. You were, you were talking a little bit about um, creaturely agency and uh, in the same, almost in the same breath as like divine self-giving in that whole Whiteheadian metaphysical framework, which I think is very sort of like, I don't know, I'm very, I find it very attractive, but it seems to get to the question, and you get into this a little bit in the book, like the importance of a spirit Christology. Do you want, do you want to say anything about that? Yeah. So, you know, most Christologies ever since the ecumenical councils and such were uh, all the other themes of Christology in scripture and in the life of the church ended up being kind of shoved into Logos Christology. And with the Logos Christology, you're starting with this, you know, eternal divine Logos, the source of all things, life, goodness, and all this kind of stuff. And eventually you get the incarnation um, and Jesus word made flesh. Uh, and then if you take that as a metaphysical assumption, you can then impose it on all the other gospels and all the images in Paul. Um, a spirit Christology 
uh, is using a much more ubiquitous in scripture <laughs> image of divine eminence and activity. Uh, a spirit Christology doesn't necessarily begin from above where the conclusions of the ecumenical councils, right? Second person of the Trinity. Right. Um, and, and it also looks at the way uh, Jesus in his own fully human fidelity is both a model and uh, a means for us having the same type of uh, fidelity. And so the in the same way that the spirit is present and available to Jesus in his own life and through his faithful uh, making material, the desire of God or the call of the spirit, uh, you know, we too exist in that dynamic. And so uh, using the spirit Christology thing, you can see his identity as, you know, son of God or whatever way you want to talk about uh, the divinity as uh, emergent in his ongoing fidelity, as opposed to like an intervention via uh, some type of ontological jump. Um, and then I use the spirit Christology as set up for rereading Logos in a, you know, with the help of John Cobb and company to talk about how, if you just reprioritize particular images in scripture, you don't end up feeling uh, that a desire to affirm a deep pluralism and the humanity of Jesus and get rid of supersession. So I'm like, that doesn't necessitate you just to turn Jesus into like generic moral teacher you think is cool. Yeah. Um, and so, it, in a sense, it's attack on logocentrism in Christology. Well, not a lot of moral teachers tell you that, you know, you can't have any part of me unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's kind of a, <laughs> it's a strange moral teaching. <laughs> well, it depends on who you hang out with, Preston. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of unconscious theophagists, right, in the church. We all are, all, all are eating gods in some sense on Sundays, right? Oh yeah, the mass is a is a is a, a virtual blood ritual, and it, it's remembering it's remembering the meal, right? The the meal on you know the last supper is, but it also yeah. it commemorates even the the atonement, which is a type of blood bloodletting as well, right? So mm -hmm. yeah, or you know the crucifixion. I mean, not the atonement. Yeah, um, my understanding of, of spirit, you know, has not been really that strong, honestly. So when people talk about it, as far as I can tell, they're usually talking about like you know they have a general feeling about something. You know, like, oh, that you, you said that in a spirit of anger or, you know, we have we have teams uh, having team spirit or like like in a more in a more Christian context. Uh, it's, you know, you get something like, oh, man, you should have come to that that uh, that striper show. We felt the presence of the well, spirit that's you know, as you do. And we got a free Bible. So that was cool. Um, but, you know, it, it's not something I've, I've really spent a lot of time on. But I'm wondering if this idea of of spirit can be adequately understood in animistic terms. We start with spirit as like a personified animating essence or animating energy. And then, you know, you smash up this kind of white heady envision with the incarnation and stuff. That seems to get you somewhere in the area of a kind of animism that's, you know, maybe it's different in some ways from other uh, expressions of animism, but I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean, I don't know if you knew this, but like my current big research project my next big like academic thing is uh, currently called god and the abridged book of nature and there's a whole section in it on christian animism uh cool. that that i've been working on that picks up on those ideas like it's at least currently like who knows like what will uh happen by the time i get done but um you know when i think of the questions around uh like animism and in, in, in scripture I, I read this book by um mark wallace about when god was a bird and it really kind of set things off because it, it, a spirit 
especially in a process framework, it kind of insists that all actual entities or beings, if you aren't using the language, are imbued with divine presence. And the problems we face as a Western culture have a lot to do with our bifurcation of nature. Um, I mean, we could unpack that more in a minute, but like Christian animism shouldn't be that hard to come up with. Like God is literally used in like explicit images of God as animals in scripture and then also in relationship to nature. And I think the fact that we find it initially off-putting or hard to get is because we actually have more faithfully internalized a kind of bifurcated nature with uh, with this kind of uh, deflationary logic of modern metaphysics than, you know, genuinely considering the testimony, in a sense, of, of the Hebrew people and um, the early church. And so it, it's kind of like uh, all imagery around God in the imminent plane gets treated as idolatry when, yeah, the golden calf, in a sense, is a concern about idolatry, but it's it's because it was chosen over against the actual presence of God, right? Like that's why the golden calf was did there. They took gold that had been given to them to provide this new life after being exploited in Egypt and they melt it down, create this golden calf as a way of worshiping something other than the one who gave them freedom and liberation. That is not a reason to just to dismiss the fact that um, when when they're in battle, Moses is holding up a giant totem serpent. <laughs> you know, there's so many different elements or that Jesus, God literally takes the shape of a dove. Right. It's like descends on it like a dove, uh, th that whole image. And so I feel like uh, um, if you're thinking Christologically uh, and this is this is in the book, but this really set it off, was starting to think of Jesus as a shaman. What happens if his spirit-filled living and engagement with the world, we read the biblical narratives uh, thinking of Jesus as shaman as part of his vocation, and all of a sudden, a whole host of different elements pop up. And I think it's you know helpful to then look at the way in which his ministry has a kind of incantatory uh, practice at the heart of it. And, and I, I know that uh, this isn't going to be too uh, shocking uh, for y'all and definitely podcast listeners that, uh, of yours, knowing y'all's general interests. But when thinking about animism, the Christian legacy for thinking nature is so anthropocentric that we have put on these type of modernist goggles that we don't recognize that the biblical story is wonderfully biocentric. And, you know, as someone who deeply invested in addressing the current climate crisis and the way our economic and habitual relationships have been commodified and, and continue to exploit the planet and the poor, um, if we have live religious traditions that make demands on us attending to the inherent value and worth of all things, recognizing that that which this community identifies as ultimate reality has deemed that material existence as something worth taking up, then I'm just going to utilize it for my grandkids' well-being. That's kind of like the underneath part of it. Like I could come up with all sorts of different ways of getting there. But if you're looking at the Christian tradition and go, we need to introduce back into Christendom and whatever parts of it are left, uh, a different relationship with the world and all these types of things. Scripture say has it already in it. And um, so, you know, connecting it to a robust eco-philosophy like process uh, philosophy is is exciting to me. Um, you know, in the book uh, that I'm working on, I mean, I don't know exactly how all of it will end up playing out, but I am also looking at the uh, 
the way in which the wilderness functions in scripture as space in nature that the domination systems uh, cease to function. So the wilderness for the people of Israel and escaping the logic of a, a Pharaoh, make me more bricks, bitch, you know, that type of thing to uh, the wilderness as space from uh, the uh, life Jesus had prior to his ministry um, at the baptism. He goes into the wilderness in a space outside the Roman occupation of Israel, where he is then tested with these visions of different ways of being the Christ, um, you know, through demonstration of power, submitting to uh, imperial uh, allegiance to Satan and taking over. The wilderness image for me is a fascinating one because it goes through both spaces. And the wilderness is a place you learn dependence on the ever materializing presence of God. So you get quail and manna and water from rocks and uh, wandering in the desert uh, where you're learning a new type of dependence on God outside the logic of Pharaoh. And then Jesus himself is learning that same type of dependence. And who is it that ministers to Jesus in the desert? The wild beast minister to him, right? So the dove empowers him and sends him out and he goes outside the logic of imperial domination system. He's tested for refining his identity. And then what ministers to him? The wild beast, Anyway, those are some of the ideas that are, are, are sitting there. And y'all are not uncomfortable with animism, but wanting to introduce it in a context where the church does it. I think using that space of outside the domination system um, as a place you're cultivating a new intimacy with God because you need to move into this new way of being, both Jesus in the vocation of Messiah and Israel in the vocation as the people of God. Um, anyway. Um, is there an ontological gap in your your theism between the, the animate and, and the theological, right? Like, I, I, this is my helping me think out the pantheism versus panentheism question. How do they relate to each other, you know? Is there, you know, a divide between God and, and creation in any kind of, like, substantial way, even though process has, there are processes, there are events, and there's these occasions and i think your process theology is more of an emergent coming from within right the divine erupts from within the processes in these kind of like revelatory or liberatory events right and then there's like that fidelity to that moment almost like a bajillion kind of read of, the, of christian revelation in a sense or maybe that's where he got the idea anyway and you know let's work on paul secondly the other question is um shit i think i might have lost the second question. oh just briefly like in terms of your uh like talking with people who are doing work on animism and like uh your own thoughts about it like i know you do a lot of theology and science stuff at you know at edinburgh and do your work there like i'm wondering if you've been able to have any like really fruitful conversations with like you know western european science models right um and kind of like notions of anim animacy or animation in this kind of uh, different ontological mode those are both really good questions. See, and now I'm going to get distracted on one and not get the other. So feel free to bring one back I'll just, up. I'll just ask one from now on. <laughs> so the yeah, well, no, because you got good ones. And then I get overwhelmed with how many things pop in my head. And I, I write down little notes and then I start looking at them. Anyway, um, specifically about uh, thinking about uh, animism and its impact on kind of the Western religion science conversation and the metaphysical assumptions in it. Uh, I, I've spent some time reading a lot of the uh, new kind of anthropological work that's using you know, cross-cultural anthropologies where you don't show up and presume the, uh, the way Western enlightenment uh, has rendered nature is the only way of interpreting it. Right. So you come up with a, a bifurcated account of nature, uh, which tends to for um, 
uh, Westerners, be one where we go like, well, there are primary qualities and secondary ones, right? What are secondary ones? They're all the things your, your mind adds on to matter and motion and like the taste of something, color, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and once we've rendered certain things as you know, really real and other things as just appearances or psychic additions, these are fun uh, early modern ways of talking about it. Then we show up in other cultures and they tell us about the world. And then we go, oh, that's an interesting superstition. Um, uh, let me tell you what you're really doing. In that type of arrogance, right? In, in one sense, like with science, you have this predicament, right? Uh, physics works everywhere. But what does it mean for it really to work everywhere? Uh, and how has the cultivation of physics in Western culture shaped the way we actually embody our own uh, our, our own knowing in the world? Uh, a different kind of cultural anthropologies are helpful because uh, there's been a move. Oh, I got one of the books right here, and I know I told Matt about it. Jeez, oh, my yes, how forests think it it's so good. Um, and then if you just start chasing down the footnotes, it turns into, uh, you know. Well, since it's my job to be doing that right now, a really fun thing to do. Um, but in it, what he does in spending time uh, is uh, he talks about the nature of Sylvian thinking, right? Thinking with uh, the trees. How do trees think? And semiotics of Charles Sanders Peirce gets utilized. Uh, and, and what he points out is that for most of Western kind of post enlightenment thinking, the type of semiotic of uh, symbolic communication is this representational type. And that is the type we prioritize. That's what human beings talk about when we talk about communicating. Uh, Peirce and also the work of a biologist, um, uh, Terrence Deacon, uh, is someone else who works with Peirce. And he points out how um, and he's rejecting the type of neo-Darwinistic uh, collapse uh, in, in, in biology, that there also is iconic types of semiosis and indexical types of semiosis in the, the rest of living things. Um, and it, it, iconic it means kind of uh, having shared qualities that then you respond and uh, engage with, or indexical means uh, ha like having a connection to, a kind of pointing referent. Um, and if you start to look at not just at the representational semiotics, but all three, you start to see that in these other cultures, they are there's a live web of interrelated communication between all living things. And because we have bifurcated nature and then created technology and, co and cultures that have uh, uh, kind of alienated us from nature, uh, or reifying those metaphysical commitments, we don't even know how trees think. But in these cultures, there's an ongoing relationship, and not just with trees, with dead spirits, with panthers. And what do you do with that, right? At least I think it insists that the way we understand symbolic communication has a reciprocal relationship with the way we hear creation. And the current way we relate to uh, nature in the West has been so determined by our anthropocentric, uh, mechanistic, uh, reductionistic account of the world, then what do we turn the rest of the world into? Commodities. What do we do? We silence all material reality that doesn't get space in our economic logic of domination. Uh, uh, Willie James uh, Jennings' book, The Christian Imagination, 
which is one of the best books I've ever read. Like uh, he he takes the same work in um, Eduardo Cohn and then connects this type of action to nature to the logic of white supremacy and, and how they perform the same functions. Uh, and I don't know where this is all going to end up. You asked a question connected to things I'm thinking about. <laughs> but um, would you be surprised that the same type of objectifying logic is at work in the pillaging of the planet, the generation of race as a category to then exploit and dehumanize populations, the generation of race, which connects to the type of imperial logic um, you see in the uh, articles of discovery and then Christendom explain so much of the very things that um, the, uh, the ways in which uh, Christendom was demonically possessed by um, the very visions of power that Jesus was tempted with in the wilderness and rejects. They've come. They come back in the church, and then they show up through this uh, uh, this colonializing logic, the silencing of nature and the exploited. I want to explore those connections, and you know, so often because uh, when you're dealing and resisting how people have internalized knowledge and they can't differentiate the script they were given from the reality that they face, anxiety comes up um, when you go direct directly to challenge it. So what are the places where you can create space for walking into a new way of being? And that's why the notion of uh, Christian animism, the idea of wilderness and think that these things are attractive to me because uh, even if you can start to learn and gain uh, wisdom for this new uh, space we, we could possibly move towards and see the resources, I don't think we know how to do it until you do it in community. Um, and, uh, and so a type of wilderness space is, uh, well, is exciting to me. So, yeah. Sorry, that, that was, was a long rambling. Um, no, it was really, really rich response. And so there's a lot there. I mean, I really like the idea of wilderness, maybe as a counterpoint uh, to the temple, right? As places of perhaps transmission on one hand or a tr a transmission versus transformation. I mean, you can sort of pull that apart and put it back together in different ways, but I think that's interesting. And then, yeah, this idea of rehabilitating or reimagining how, and so, some, some of this gets dropped at the feet of Descartes, right? Mm -hmm. I think Leibniz has a lot to answer for too. Like when you can sort of, when you can transpose the entirety of of the world and, and, and the experience of the world into ones and zeros. I think that has huge consequences for um, how we experience the world and like some of the ways, some of the ways that you were describing it and like reimagining or re recapturing a, like robust sense of the iconic or the symbolic, I think is, is absolutely vital to this larger sort of animus project that you're talking about. And that, that makes me think of Paul Tillich and his importance for your work. Do you want to kind of fold that back into the self-investment stuff? Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was in the discussion of Roger Haight, who really develops his book uh, as a kind of Catholic, a Catholic Christology using Tillich, right? Um, then he gets censured for it. And he jokes uh, that if he just called it, instead of Jesus, symbol of God, if he'd said Jesus, sacrament of God, they wouldn't have gotten mad at him. But, you know, Tillich, looking at the notion of symbol, he wants to say that the event of revelation is an ontological possibility for all conditioned reality, that the, the structure of condition to the unconditioned means that any part of conditioned reality can be taken up in the event of revelation, right? In the sense that it becomes a symbol. Now, symbols have lives, right? In, in communities, there are living symbols, dying symbols, rising symbols. Um, 
and it's precisely what they end up mediating or making present that gives a symbol its power, what it participates in. Um, when I think of one of the, and I don't know if this is where you were going with it, but one of the challenges that Tillich points out um, about our current context in, in a way it could connect to uh, thinking about uh, animism is he resists, <laughs> a fun way of putting it is, he, he doesn't go along with the filioque clause, right? So that the activity of the spirit also proceeds from the sun. For him, the procession of the word from the sun, it becomes a, a form of the event, uh, which in some sense is normative, right? Christ as new being for him. But it, do, it doesn't mean that the spirit can't take up any part of contingent reality at once. Uh, I think the, the Western church's desire to make, uh, in a sense, the filioque clause writ large has meant that the only places we think bear the potentiality of divine rapture are places where it proceeds from the Father and the Son, right? Um, the, the Spirit is, is uh, uh, bounded by that type of word. And his notion of symbol is trying to open up the uh, potential of, of all those, uh, of all conditioned reality as potentially bearing um, uh, the event of revelation. The, you know, the other thing about, in a, in a sense, the, I don't know, you know, the phrase, you know, in the poem about nature red with tooth and claw, and people will use that in reference regularly. And I've been tracking down when the first time it gets used by a theologian to explain the inherent violence of creation and such. Um, but one of the things that stuck out to me, and, and I haven't decided exactly what to make of it, but in reading um, uh, how force think and, sh and following uh, everything through, uh, the indigenous semiotics uh, it don't deny the reality that the West and modernity renders red and tooth and claw, but that is not how they interpret it, right? Like that notion of violence in relationship to materiality is not primarily how it's understood. And part of it may be that prior to modernity's turn to the subject, the same biological systems that we read as violence weren't read that way. And I think you could see that in, um, in that work. And thinking about the hermeneutics of nature I wonder if Christendom's domineering monotheism, the kind of early modern distancing of God from nature, which you can see like in early natural theology, eventually deism, uh, plus that dualism you mentioned, so displaced humanity from nature that uh, this reading emerges where nature red and tooth and claw makes perfect sense because we've now so privileged human subjectivity and so distanced the divine from materiality that then all of nature is threat to the very things we privilege and protect. We so distance ourselves from nature. Um, and, you know, when you look at uh, these different anthropologies and even some other non-monotheistic cultures, they include those semiotic relationships with nature, dead, the spirits, um, and the seeming violence for us that it, we resist, like nature, red, and tooth and claw woven into nature is woven into a narrative of meaning for them. Right? So like the opening bit about uh, going to sleep in, in Hellforce Sink, going to sleep with your eyes up so a panther knows you're alive. And there, you know, all these little things throughout the book that then that shows up that the rest of the forest read them that way. It's fascinating. Um, you know, there among the Runa, which is the tribe that Eduardo Cohn spent time with, the connections 
uh, of a pre-modern or maybe a better, a non-modern hermeneutics of nature exist. One that exceeds that, uh, that kind of symbolic representation alone. Um, semiotic representation is is only one type of it. And so when a culture retains the ears that hear that indexical work or that iconic semiotics of, of nature, then uh, trees get to think dog's dream. Nature's not red, red with tooth and claw, you know, anyway, red, like red. Oh, nicely done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've been thinking about that. I've, I find it humorous, but so like when you connect that, bit with Willie Jennings in Christian imagination, that if the world speaks, we have to listen, then what is it domination systems do but silence? Silence by commodification. And then when nature and the conquered become natural resources, what do we do? You know, the book of nature, in a sense, becomes a collection of objects. And in that kind of objectifying trajectory, I think happens or has its source in this bifurcating move that is at the heart of the modern project. Um, I thought about using the phrase for whatever this ends up being, you know, like the new materialism, but new materialism, like, yeah. uh, but not new materialism with N-E-W, but P-N-E-U materialism. Yeah, new Yeah, new materialism. So in Greek philosophy, was Numa was that... Was Nuba at any sense like a conscious form of, of life? Like like psyche, suke is like the, where we get soul and it gets translated through modernity through, you know, this Cartesian notion of mind. And then you have the separation between mind and body. And then numatologically, there's a whole history of the spirit discourse within Christianity, what that looks like. And you've talked a little bit about that today. So, yeah, sorry, I don't want to get off too far. Just between the Numa and how Numa like reveals herself within what we call creation or the animate, right, as a part of as a part of the world, but also as something, you know, like that runs through us, but that's not us. Yeah. So the, I mean, at least within process metaphysics, you have these two different elements that are operative in a sense for uh, thinking about pneumatology. One is that is creativity, that which all things participate in and nothing individually particularizes that a kind of principle of identity uh, in Whitehead is different than God which has this um, ongoing valuative generative investment in the world. And so, yeah, I find it helpful to differentiate the two um, because different religious traditions are, are centered in, you know, different ultimates within process framework. Um, God has a, 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 an investment in how the material order and relationships are invested in, right? And then the religious traditions center on a personal invested ultimate, uh, the monotheistic religions. For, with them, the notion of spirit is uh, about the transformation of the material order and network of relations. In Eastern religions, this notion of spirit is a bit different, has more to do with cultivating harmony with, with things, Um and, you know, I've been reading a kind of cross-cultural study of different images of the spirit. And one of them is, uh, you know, whether or not spirit functions as resistance to or attunement to. Um, and, you know, you think of the prophet being filled with the spirit as resisting. Uh, 
Um, then you think of like the notion of Wu Wei or something like that as attunement to uh, reality. And underneath it is we cling too hard to our own ego or subjectivity or something, right? Um, and, and so the, when we think of the concept of the spirit and like, I definitely want to be able to talk about both. And for me, not collapsing them both into God is really helpful. Uh, when it goes to creativity, the invitation for within process philosophy is to cultivate the wisdom of, of recognizing one's shared identity with all that is. Uh, and when it goes to one's relationship with God, it's cultivating one's allegiance to uh, God's desire and dream for the world. And I, I, I think that th there are ways to connect uh, the two of them. And I think they both have a role in animism, which is kind of the other side of it. And this hasn't been written a whole lot, or I'm just now, uh, I, I just ordered a, a book on uh, a process, uh, uh, Wiccan metaphysics, but in um, process thinkers who come out of uh, either kind of secular traditions or, uh, or older traditions or animistic traditions in the like how they would get categorized in a religion yeah, class. Like neo-paganism um, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. For them have cultivated the primary ultimate in Whitehead that you would understand their piety in is the world, not God or uh, creativity. Uh, if you think of process has like four ultimates, like God, world, creativity, and the forms. Um, and, and theirs is the world. So uh, yeah, I'm wanting to go spend some time looking at how it shows up there and then think if spirit is the right framework for connecting the two and getting the or the three and thinking of the benefits of the whole or was it better to you know like you hinted at before look at the different words to get translated spirit in um in scripture or in different traditions and then partic more particular images to to get the uniqueness of different traditions and insights out because underneath it i think the challenge all those traditions are currently facing uh is the changing role of technology that at the point right now technology is not just something we've created it's also recreated us and it's changing the human subject and the way we uh, uh experience the world at a level that they all are having shared challenge or shared threat in a sense this remaking of what it means to be human with uh the growing technological eruption and connection and so i wonder this is my test case that's so I don't even know why I'm telling you this on a podcast, but my hunch is what if looking at how they respond to a shared problem that we all are having now as we're learning each other, different religious or spiritual philosophical systems are coming to know each other. They have different resources, but, but what, what if we look at how they respond to something where they're all kind of addressing this new problem for the first time together. And what, what is it? Like how technology is simultaneously weaving us into a financialized global market space and connecting us with uh, a multiplicity of narratives and then shaping our anxieties by drawing out our attention and insisting that there's technological algorithmic mediations of relationality.
for most liberal Protestantism, most ex-evangelicals and all this type of thing, the idea of a personal ultimate reality that's intimately invested in the world is so off-putting because it's inherently connected to some weird supernatural stuff, a lot of manipulative and coercive religion and things you don't ever get around to thinking it through. And so my ministerial work has been creating spaces where you live into the Abba community and then reflect on it theologically. If I just told you, first thing I said on this podcast, hi, it's War Machine. Uh, today, we're Trip's going to say that the most true thing about you is that you're known and loved completely by God. They'd be like, this is bullshit, skip, right? But the moment you thought about what it would be like to sit with a community of people and do it for a month, you're like, holy cow, what would it be like to actually trust a group of people to see me as we want God to be, to see, where we believe God to see us and then desire us to live and treat ourselves as if God is. And what would that mean to love our neighbor as ourselves if that was what was going on in it? Then all of a sudden you would say things like, we've heard it say, don't covet your neighbor's wife, but don't look at them lustfully. Like, don't turn them to an object. Or you've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Like, so much of the logic changes when you're in a community whose, whose own subjectivities form together around this Abba intimacy. Um, and so the book is really coming out of this, like Tripp's own kind of, I mean, it's, you know, all theology is autobiographical. This, none of this story is in the book, but this is where it came from. <laughs> And, uh, and I, as a minister who, because of the podcast, like each week I've talked to 50,000 people on the internet and I talk to all sorts of different, uh, scholars and stuff and meet all these people who have had experiences with the divine and care enough to listen to me, talk to people for 90 minutes. And then I, I feel so bad that we have not even created space where we can do the as if this is true because this form of life is so life-giving. And then let's speculate and stuff from it. But I just, it drives me up a wall. Evangelicalism ruined Christianity because it made everyone think the truth of it was what you assented to. And then you have to go around checking everyone's facts all the time. And then you have to find one you feel comfortable in and what they believe. And we all know most people at a church don't even believe what the minister says. And at most of them, we don't believe what we said because we don't really know all the time. But the question is, what are you showing up to? What are you giving yourself to? And the heart of the book, the heart of what I'm excited about is giving myself to a community that seeks to materialize life in the way of Jesus. So, uh, and then, you know, think nerdy with it. Okay, so part two uh, will be coming soon. Intro music was provided by Nikki Nine. Check out his Bandcamp in the show notes. Sound design by Matt Baker and Jacob Andrade, who specifically provided the drone sequence uh, towards the end of the episode. Outro music by yours truly. Uh, we'll see you next time.